Good morning. My name is Dee, and it is a joy to be with you this morning. Um, I'm one of the pastors here and have the privilege this morning of uh, leading us as we dig into God's Word. So um, you saw the passage that was just read up on the screen and maybe followed along in your Bible. We're going to be looking at um, the third letter of John as well as the third chapter of 2 Corinthians. And so there's kind of a reason behind uh, coupling those two together. One is that I think um, 2 Corinthians helps us, at least helps me in understanding a little bit more about 3 John. Um, But it's also the end of one series and kind of the beginning of another. Uh, Last week I was so grateful that Rebecca Laird was able to step in and help and speak on Pentecost Sunday. And um, I heard that she did a wonderful job and opening up God's Word in that way. In the weeks that preceded that, we've been looking at 1 John, 2 John, and we're going to take a look at 3 John. And then this week, we were going to begin a series that takes us into chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 of 2 Corinthians. So I thought, since there actually I felt like was a bridge between the two, that I would try and use both of those scriptures together. Um, 3 John is the passage that was read. It's not the third chapter of John. It's the third letter that comes. And we assume that they are from John. All we have at the beginning of these um, last two letters are that they are from the elder. There's reason to believe that the elder is John for several reasons, but One of them is that John is one of the disciples, the only disciple that lived um, and may have died actually a death of natural causes as opposed to being martyred for the faith um, in ways that many of the other disciples were put to death. So he lived a rather long life and had a number of experiences to watch the church as it developed and faced problems that the church really didn't have in its early stages. It's explosive growth, it's propagation, the missionary efforts, but as Jesus' hopeful return didn't occur, it began to be an issue for the church as to how they handled that. What is it that we really believe about the Messiah, about Jesus the Christ? And so those kinds of issues began to settle into the church's conversations, its teaching. John got to watch all of this and began to talk in very specific ways about what it meant to be the church and to allow God's spirit and God's kingdom to come through the church to the world in which they lived. No longer, like James talks about in his letter, simply sitting around at the temple every day waiting for Christ's return, but instead being active, being engaged, participating in the world, and allowing your life to depict the kingdom of God. So the elder, it's very possible that it was John, and so these letters are attributed to John's hand. There aren't too many messages that come out of Second and Third John, It's not part of the regular readings of what we call the lectionary over the course of three years, but it's part of Scripture. So what might it have to say to us? 
Third John is even more difficult to speak about what it might say to us about the kingdom of God and Jesus because it is the only New Testament book where the name Jesus or Messiah Christ is not mentioned. Nowhere in this letter, it's the shortest of all books, but nowhere is Jesus or Messiah Christ mentioned. The only place that comes close is in verse 7 where it makes reference to the name. Very often in the Old Testament, the name would refer to God, to Yahweh, to Jehovah. In the New Testament, there are several instances where the name refers to Jesus. And it would appear from the context of what's said here that the reference to the name is a reference to the Christ. But it is interesting that the name of Jesus is not mentioned throughout this letter. So what does it have to teach us? Well, we look first at to whom it is written, a person by the name of Gaius. The elder writes to Gaius, and the elder is indebted to and grateful for the life of Gaius and sends his greetings and talks about the joy that fills his heart when he sees Gaius's faithfulness and the faithfulness of all of God's children that are walking in ways that honor God. So there is this admonition, this shared joy that the elder talks about in other places where he writes, this notion of joy that we have when we watch and hear one another's journey, journey of faithfulness. It speaks toward community, that this is not a solo journey that we take with Christ. That we're called to encourage one another, to be with one another, to support one another, to speak into one another's lives, and to make the journey one where we build one another up and move us closer to what it means to allow the kingdom to come to earth through us. He then mentions a couple of other characters. In verse 9, he makes reference to Diotrephes. And then in verse 12, he makes reference to Demetrius. And he talks about them in two very different ways. The elder writes and says, you know, I've tried to make contact through Diotrephes, but he hasn't been very responsive to my requests. In fact, he's made it very, very difficult. Not only has... He said that we won't receive you, but he also won't extend hospitality to any who come from me. To make it even worse, he tells everyone in the church not to extend any hospitality at all. And if they do, he's going to throw them out of the church. Interesting, the elders' frustration because this is the very same strategy, it seems to me, that he admonishes in Second John to those who are preaching false doctrine. I make no assumptions that you remember anything from two weeks ago. But two weeks ago when we talked about Second John, we talked about the fact that the elder writes and says, there are some who are teaching a theology that's dangerous. And the theology is this, that... that Christ, God, did not actually come incarnate in the babe in Bethlehem, but instead, the Spirit of God descended 
on the person Jesus and was with Jesus for a period of time and then reascended to heaven before the crucifixion. This notion was built on the thought that everything about the spirit was good, everything about the material world was evil. Built on partial truths. The dangerous part of that theology is that it does not lead to redemption. That which is evil of the material world is eventually going to perish and be destroyed. And yet, God in Christ came to redeem. Came to redeem us. To make us holy again. So God created us and then gave us freedom to choose. And the choices that we've made take away from the holiness that God created, those choices often lead to destruction or pain or hurt. The choices we make separate us from our creator. Redemption in Christ is so that not only will we be forgiven, but who we are gets redeemed. So that which became toxic now once again becomes sacred. Christ came in human form that we might be redeemed. It's an amazing promise, but you can't get to that conclusion by the teachings of some described in Second John. So the elder writes, worried that some of the people might not only entertain them, but get swept up in that doctrine and says, be careful that you don't entertain them. That same strategy then is used against the elder in 3 John, where Diotrephes says, no, we won't entertain you. You or anyone else you send. And if anybody does open up their homes to you, we're going to put them out of the church. Be careful. Because the way you treat others is often the way that comes back to treat you. I don't know what this says about the elder and his admonition in 2 John. But I do think it's interesting how much it frustrates him that the way he admonished others to act is now being used against him in a way that causes him frustration. And he very clearly says, when I show up, I'm going to call him out on that. Well, the issue here is really in 3 John, not about hospitality. It's about character. The character of Diotrephes versus the character of Demetrius. Diotrephes, it says very clearly, it's not so much that he's inhospitable, it's that he loves to be first. He's in control. He has a difficult time letting go of control. He is arrogant in his approach, and he's distant. This is an individual who probably at some point in time had the Spirit of Christ enter his life, and he saw the truth. But as time passed, became detached from the power source of his creator. 
and found in his position or his power or his knowledge or his control that he was sufficient in himself, could make decisions on his own, no longer needed the broader community of believers with all of their differences, all of the ways in which God works with us in such a variety of experiences to learn from one another, to grow from one another, and to test our thoughts against one another. Not Diotrephes. He stands alone, pretty confident in himself, assured that his way is the right way. If I could take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the writer Paul to the church at Corinth addresses a number of things. But in verses 4 and 5, he says we find our competence and what goes with that, our confidence in God, in no one else. The writer says very clearly in that passage, it's really not by what any, we've done at all. It is because of God and what God has done in us, and now we are privileged to have God doing through us. Here's the difference in character. Character is that to which you're attached, the source of your goodness. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that people can't be good apart from putting their faith in Jesus Christ. I am very grateful that God's grace so infuses God's creation that we are able to see evidence of God even in settings where God's not put first. It's, it's a kind of grace that people tap into sometimes without knowing it. It is a, it is a love that is present only because of God but sometimes we attribute it to many things other than God. And, and Paul here is just simply saying the truth. Apart from God, there is no competence. There is no goodness. There is no grace. There is no forgiveness. It is because of God. He goes on to speak in verses 7 and beyond about the things that take place when the law first came. And he speaks about Moses going up to the mountain. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, having been with God, and we talked two weeks ago about God's desire to be in relationship with us, which really is an incredible thing. What an odd faith tradition we have. That the creator of the universe wants to be in relationship with us. That is a strange characteristic, and yet it's at the heart of the Christian faith. Not just that there was a God who created or that there are principles that are laid down by the creator of the universe, principles that are woven into the universe. No, it's more than that. We actually believe that the creator desires not only to know you and me, but to be known by you in relationship. That's just... Amazing, a little weird, but incredible. God's desire to be in relationship with you. Moses went up on the mountain. I think everyone could have gone up on the mountain. 
Moses says they could have. God came to meet you face to face, but you were too afraid. And so Moses became the intermediary, goes up on the mountain, receives the commandments, and comes down. And his face is so radiant for having been with God that he actually puts a veil over his face so that it won't blind the eyes of the people when he comes down. Being in God's presence. And Moses then became a reflection of God's glory. Paul's argument in that passage, chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, is this. If the law, which leads to condemnation, came with such glory and radiance, pause for a moment, so the law leads to condemnation. The law leads ultimately to death. We often go back to the law because it feels like such a safe place to be and it's so clearly defined and we can determine who's in and who's out and when we've crossed the line. It is a comfortable place because it is clearly defined, but the law leads to condemnation because we can never fully live up to the law, so it leads to death. That's what the law was. Moses came down with this law that was really put in place to lead us to Christ, to show us the futility of trying to keep the law. But when he came down with this law, the presence of having been with God so radiated from his countenance and God's glory so powerful that the people had a tough time looking at it. And Paul says, if the law came with that much glory, how much more God's Spirit, when God's Spirit fills us, will come with glory and radiance and awe. I, this is probably a futile thing to try, but I've got a bag here of stuff. None of it makes sense, I know, but you know light is both complicated and not that complicated. It is complicated because I don't understand it, but it's not that complicated because you get two wires, you have a little socket, you put in a light bulb, and hopefully something comes on. But you have to plug it into a power source, you know that, so let me, I have no idea if this power source is hooked to anything, but we'll find out. I've not always had great success with electricity. So stand back, everybody. But pretty simple, I think. Hold it away from my face. Maybe. Oh, look at that. Thank you. And we're finished. Wow. You are an easy crowd. Thank you. Oh, it's a three-way. Nice. So, I mean, there's so much about God's redemption for us that's really simple. It is that God created us to be filled by God's Spirit so that we might be all that God created us to be. It's a pretty simple concept. There are other ways in which it's incredibly complicated because it's something that was from the beginning. The Word was with God before creation ever began. It required this 
sacrifice on the cross that was necessary because of our disobedience. But in essence, it's pretty simple. We ask the Lord for forgiveness and say, God, be the Lord of my life. Give birth in me to your light. Let your light shine into the darkness of my life and transform me because that's what I was created to be. I was created to be yours. And all the things that I've done have not gotten me to all I was created to be. I think we do a lot after that point that make it a lot more complicated. And, you know, this was so complicated in first service. I only got half of it done, so I didn't do, undo the half that I did because, well, who knows why. We keep adding things that make it look a lot better. This was all apart about 15 minutes ago. It was a whole piece as early as yesterday in our living room. My wife wasn't fully aware of what was going to happen, and I'm not sure that this was a good thing to try and do, but we start adding a lot of things that make our faith look more acceptable, Mm, maybe look like it will fit in better with the people with whom we worship, or maybe the community in which we live. So we add some things to, um, for us to fit a little bit better. It doesn't necessarily detract. In fact, our initial take is that it really enhances, kind of makes things look better, though we don't always look just great. That's not supposed to be quite that loose, but oh well. Maybe I just pull that a little bit tighter. Pull this a little bit tighter. Oh, So we can actually do more adornments and um, something's missing. Let's try that right there, upside down. Oh my goodness. This made so much sense last night. And once we put all the things together, much like diatrophies, we might get rather enamored by what we've been able to do. Looks pretty good. People have to be pleased. We might even switch bulbs to be a little more politically correct. Change the language of our faith a little bit so it fits a little bit better into our culture. Or at least so that people won't notice quite as much what it is that is taking place in our life. We might even find that we don't want to be quite so brilliant for others, so we use shades to kind of block out some things. Eventually, we're pretty proud of ourselves, looking pretty nice, and it looks like that's it, really pleased with what I've become, doing nothing. You are the light of the world. Not a light fixture. You're supposed to be more than a light fixture. You're supposed to be the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill can't be hid. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. No, instead, they put it in a place where others can see the light. And in the same way, let your light so shine before others that not only do they see the good things that are happening, 
but they see God the Father who's behind it all. Verse 12, Demetrius. In 3 John, the elder writes about Demetrius and says, Oh, Demetrius, don't you just love him? He's spoken well of by everyone. He's even spoken well of by the truth. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds fantastic. The truth speaks well of Demetrius. Take the truth, set Demetrius beside it, and they just go together. Don't you feel that way about some people? You just look at them and are in their presence, and you say, I feel like I've been with God with them. They look like I think the Spirit of God looks like. I walk away feeling like I've been bathed in something good. Where is character attached? Does character matter? Yes. But it ultimately matters where that character is connected because I can look good for a while. I can put on the adornment. But if I have never connected to the power source or if after having connected to the power source, I have thought that all of this stuff is what makes the difference, then I'm sadly mistaken. I'm not even sure if it will go on at this point. Oh, would you look at that? Connected to the power source is what God calls us to do. I pray that as a church, we're not satisfied with being fixtures. Be in a place that has the right building or a good location. That we've become a group of people who know how to talk faith. Trust me, I, I believe in studying. I believe in digging into God's word. But the purpose for digging into God's word is because of what the word reveals, Jesus Christ. And it's got to lead to relationship with Christ. I believe in prayer. I hope you're praying. But the goal of prayer is not simply to bring a laundry list to God. It's it's to know God and to hear God guide us. Prayer is for relationship. Scripture says, study to show thyself approved. Absolutely. But the reason we study is not for study itself so that we can have a nice fixture. The purpose of study is to know and be in relationship with Jesus. That's what the writers of both these books are trying to tell us. Character counts, but the way it counts in order to make a difference is if it's connected, connected to the one who longs to have relationship with you and me, longs to know you by name, not because God has to be told, but because you bring yourself to God and say, God, know me. Know the places where I've not yet let the light shine in those dark corners. Know me where I'm afraid to let my light shine. Know me where I find security and safety and being more concerned about the adornment pieces than I am about the light that you are wanting to put inside of me. So this morning, maybe for some, it's forgiveness for the first time. 
what it means to let God's light come into our life. To say, Lord, I'm sorry. My choices have left us separated. Forgive me. And turn a light on in my life. Let new birth happen in me this morning, Lord. For others, it may be, Lord, forgive me because I know you have put your life and light inside of me. But I have done so much to cloud it, to cover it, to shade it, to change it. I have, by my actions and choices, put a bowl over top of it because I'm afraid of what people will think or I'm afraid of what I think or I'm afraid of the light shining in the corners of my life that I don't want it to shine. Or I've become so much more satisfied with what I look like in my Christian faith and who I am in my Christian faith. Forgive me, Lord, and let my light shine so that others might see you. Paul says, don't see me. See the Christ who makes it all possible. Father in heaven, this is your day. We're here for a number of reasons. But whatever the reason, Lord, this morning, may we somehow tap into your light. Gracious good God. Forgiveness seems in order for many of us here today. Forgive, Lord, and cleanse our sins so that you might become the Lord of our life. For those who desperately need that kind of forgiveness this morning, Lord, please bear witness with their spirit that they are your child. They are called by your name. And let taking that name not be in vain, but let it change who they are from the inside out. Light a light in their life that radiates, that changes the way they look at circumstances, changes the way they hear their life's journey, softens their hearts so that your spirit might begin to work. God, let this morning be yours for them. And some of us, Lord, who desperately need forgiveness because we have been so unfaithful to the light that you've placed in us. As easy it is to criticize Diotrephes, Lord, his life resonates so clearly with some of us. Depending on our own understanding, thinking we have all of the answers, control, sometimes arrogant. Lord, it may be just the opposite of that, sometimes embarrassed, ashamed. We recoil from anyone who might ask about our faith. We don't realize the desperate need for your light simply to shine. It's not to burn a hole in other people's life. It's just to shine a light where they're stumbling. It's just to turn the light on in the midst of confusion. It's simply 
a help to the path and journey. And when that light is seen, oh God, it leaves this taste in the heart longing for more. So forgive us for the many bowls that have covered the light that you've placed inside us. This morning, Lord, in the midst of that forgiveness, give us faith that your grace is real. Renew our hope and let our light shine so that others may actually see good in the world and through that, that they might come to know you and glorify your name. We pray this because your word says it's true and we long to be in relationship with you. Thank you, Father. Amen.